that worship would in some way encourage you? Encourage you for the deep, fulfilling promises of life? And I also hope, and this is something that I think is also very important, that worship today would hold up a mirror for you. To see yourself more honestly. Put yourself in a position to grow, to become more fully yourself. So welcome this morning. So glad that you're here. A couple of announcements. First, the beautiful flowers this morning come from our Allison. In loving memory of Jack Davis, engineer, sailor. Craftsman, golfer, papa, father, and friend. We miss you more than we can. So thank you, Allison, for that beauty and for that memory. And for Donna, who is working alongside Allison. Come on in. Thank you. 
Oh God, we give thanks for the gift of another new day. Help us to leave behind whatever burdens or sorrows might have come from this week. Help us to release them. Help us to be more fully present. Help us to tune in now to your word, your spirit, your presence, so that we might be encouraged, nourished, and do help us to be honest so that we can grow, so that we might not be stuck, but we might continue Continue to become more fully human, more filled with light and love. We pray by your Holy Spirit. And now, in the name of the one who taught us to pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.
God, make us a grateful people with eyes to see and hearts to know the bounty that comes to us. Bless now these gifts that they might pour forth out into the world what the world most needs. morning's text for our sermon comes from the book of 2 Samuel. We'll talk a little bit more about it in the sermon, but just to create a tiny bit of context, this story now that we're going to hear comes after some very naughty behavior from King David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very, very large number of cattle and sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. When he heard it, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as God lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel. I gave you all of Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you more. So why? Why did you despise the word of God? Why did you do evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite. 
took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword in battle. So now the sword will never depart from your house because you did this thing. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. and He will sleep with your wives. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, The Lord forgives you. You will not die. God, help us to follow this story and follow it to a deeper place, a place of self-reflection, a place of truth-telling, and finally, a place of grace. May it be so. Again, today, by recalling the story of Narcissus from Greek and Roman mythology, Ovid told the story of Narcissus from his birth. Narcissus was fathered by a river god to a nymph named Lyriope. Lyriope was told by a prophet that Narcissus would reach old age if he didn't become too enamored with himself. Narcissus turned into a very, very beautiful young man whom everyone loved. But there was no one to whom Narcissus would return affection. Enter Echo. Echo was a nymph who was destined to fate that she could only repeat the sounds and last words of others. And so one day she spots and falls in love with Narcissus and follows him through the woods, but can't speak without repeating his words. Finally, Narcissus tried to call to Echo, but failed failed since she could only repeat his call. And finally she appeared and tried to hold Narcissus. And Narcissus rejected her. Since Narcissus denied everyone his love, the gods fated that Narcissus could never have anything that he loved. One day, while Narcissus was hunting, he went to get a drink. And as he bent down to drink the water, he fell in love with the reflection of himself. He was so awed by this person that he couldn't move. He tried to grab the image, but he couldn't, which seemed to make him even more infatuated with himself. He stayed there without any sleep or food. He called to the gods and asked why he was being 
the, denied the love that he felt, he started to talk to the reflection and said that he would never leave and that they would die as one. And so Narcissus stayed by the side of the water and wasted away. What a strange way to start a sermon. <laughs> what in the world is Carter going to say? It's a story that has always captured my imagination. And it may, it may seem like a story that we can't easily relate to. Most of us are not overtly or obviously in love with ourselves. We are not obsessed with our actual reflection. The older we get, the less and less time we spend in front of the mirror admiring what we see. I look so much better with clothes on. <laughs> but here's what I do think is true. I, was, I think we spend a whole bunch of our lives, particularly our early lives, building this house that we call self. And it's built with ideas and stories about who we think we are and what we think is important and how we want other people to see us. And the house called self gets traction. It has a way of defining us and even driving our behavior. And we grow attached to this metaphorical house. We protect it and we defend it. And even if it isn't self-infatuation, it becomes this identity with which we are comfortable. We shrink into it and we cling to what we know. And then almost unknowingly resist the uncomfortable opportunities that might creatively tear down the house called self. And God forbid somebody would ever criticize us. Last weekend, I was in North Carolina with probably my closest friend from college. He's a great guy. He is a gentleman. And he is a generous, loyal friend. He did incredibly well as a banker. He's newly and comfortably retired he belongs to three or four golf clubs. He's always planning his next vacation. And I'm so happy for him, particularly because I'm the beneficiary <laughs> of his hard work. <laughs> but it was a weird weekend. We had all these tense conversations. Whenever we talked about the last election or we talked about Black Lives Matter or the attention given to the LGBTQ community, he was visibly agitated and angry. And honestly, I was, I was struggling to understand the world has been so good to him, and none of the issues that I mentioned have any immediate effect on him. 
So I asked him, I said, why is this so loaded for you? He said, I've worked hard all my life. I played by the rules. Nobody's going to tell me this isn't a great country. Nobody's going to tell me that I've gotten it wrong. It's fascinating, right? Like, I don't have any desire to throw my friend under the bus. None. But this is a perfect example, I think, of how we build an identity, how we shape a story about who we are and what we think is the truth. I'm a good person, I work hard, I play by the rules, this is a great country. But then we can't tolerate any kind of criticism. It feels like a threat. It feels like an attack. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Christian faith actually tells us that we do not know ourselves or the world as we should. Both those who are inflated and those who are deflated fail to understand that a child of God is always a work in progress and always in need of correction. And failure to understand this basic spiritual truth is the biggest impediment to spiritual growth. It's an interesting idea, right? The impediments attachments that get in the way of our spiritual growth. So I want to spend a couple minutes going back over the story. I think it's one of the great stories in the Old Testament. And I, I think it, it's many things, it's many sermons, but it's, I think, a lesson on how to give and to receive criticism. It's really not primarily a story about sexual impropriety. It's about the countless dangers of privilege and the parallel abuses of power. It is about, I think, how the comfortable so easily lose sight of God. And then, without even knowing it, let their own wants and desires and appetites and defenses govern their day-to-day -day lives. So when we drop into this particular story, King David has become a lauded and esteemed leader. He gets whatever he wants whenever he wants it. And one day he wants Bathsheba, who happens to be someone else's wife, takes her, clear abuse of power, and then she gets pregnant, and he tries to cover his tracks by getting Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to sleep with her. You get the connection. If Uriah sleeps with her, then it isn't going to show up as David's child. But the cover-up doesn't work, so David sends Uriah to the front lines of battle to his certain death. So in the plot, we have a story about somebody who commits adultery, tries to protect his reputation, and then commits murder. So it's not a lovely story. And Nathan comes on the scene. You know what he wants to do? He, he, he wants to do what any good person wants to do. 
he wants to bring God back into his consciousness. He tells a story. He tells a story about a wealthy man and a poor man. He says, the man was broken hearted. And to David's credit, his conscience gets activated. He's full of righteous anger and declares that the man should be killed. And you remember, Nathan says, no, it's you, it's you. And David says, it is me. So when I read this story and, and I try to put aside my disappointment in David, I'm so inspired by Nathan's approach to correction. I think his approach to correction is so compelling. And I think it's a great lesson for those of us who live in relationship with others. It's sort of a how-to offer constructive criticism manually. So I want to stop and just say what criticism is because we have cast it in such a negative light. But in the Latin and in the Greek, the word refers to one who is skilled at assessing the merits of something. Someone who is skilled at assessing the value of something, what it is good for. So its primary purpose criticism isn't to tear down or to put something in a demeaning light. It's about improvement. It's about correction. And Nathan just wants David to remember his relationship with God and his commitment to the well-being of others. And that's kind of the message for us. Not to lose our connection to God or our commitment to the well-being of others. And how does he do it? Well, he doesn't do it with a frontal attack on David's character. That's usually my strategy when I'm angry. The frontal attack on somebody else's character. But Nathan isn't directly accusatory or threatening, even if it might have been deserved. He tells a great story because great stories have a way of softening people's defenses. And he does another thing. He speaks through the lens of someone's pain. He shows David that mindlessness, distance from God, inevitably hurts people. It confuses them. It leaves them defeated. He calls on David's compassion in the storytelling to show him how far he has strayed from God. I want and I need more Nathan in my life. I want to back away from the direct assault, the defensive attack, mostly because they don't work. I want to be more of a storyteller that would lead another person back into a deeper connection with God. My beloved dad, <clears throat> was a kind of Nathan figure in my life. 
I remember his words vividly on the heels of my marital breakup, which was largely on me. And he spoke indirectly and in the third person, and he said, Carter, all of us need to remember our role in protecting and mending the fabric of society. When we forget, we hurt people. And God calls us to do otherwise. I got the message. So before we end, I want to shift away from the lesson about how to give criticism, how to become a better storyteller, <clears throat> and speak briefly about how to receive criticism. One psychologist writes, very few people can take criticism graciously. That's a pretty, pretty big understatement. For most of us, being criticized is uncomfortable at best, destabilizing at worst. The ability to take criticism in stride, it seems, is almost universally elusive. But we need not be subjugated by it indefinitely. The author continues, and this is interesting. When we receive negative feedback, we root into our emotional brain, right? Which surpasses our thinking brain. The emotional brain, which is typically known as the limbic system, is where our data bank of triggers and emotional memories lives. And this happens to everyone. But it is imperative, particularly as people of conscience and people of faith, that we practice the muscle that takes us to our thinking brain so that we can learn and grow. That limbic system, though, is powerful. I don't know about you, but I have a whole host of things that I say when I think I'm being criticized. It's funny when I get distance from it, but it's not funny when it isn't funny. But I'd say things like, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. That's a good one, isn't it? as if you couldn't ever say anything challenging unless you really, really, really knew me. Then I like to say things like, who are you to judge me? That's a good one, right? As if nobody but a saint could ever say anything challenging. Here's another one I like. I'm already hard on myself. This goes on and on. It's a long list. I'm good at that. I remember confronting my dear friend Gary. Many of you know Gary. By the way, he gave me permission to tell this story. He first started seminary. He was doing great in so many ways, but he, he, he had at least one too many girlfriends. And I suggested that he should take a look at that pattern of behavior in his life. And he got very defensive and said, who in the world are you to be telling me that? I was about to get defensive right back, but I paused and I smiled and said, well, I'm probably the best person in the world to be telling you that. He thanked me a hundred times for that conversation. 
changed it. G.K. Chesterton says, we're children of God. We're works in progress. Almost always in need of correction. So I might hope for each one of you that you would become people who look for correction. The people who, like David, realize that each day we fall short that we need others to show us, and that we need God always, always to lead us back towards who we were created to be.
God, you have been with us this morning. Your spirit here before we arrived in stillness and beauty of this place. Your spirit here now inside of each one of us and living between us. God, let's not stop even there. Return into our communities. Return towards the cities. Turn towards the depressed parts of those cities and our nation and then turn towards all the other nations. What we ask for is just a big, open heart. A heart ready for compassion and empathy and a will ready to do whatever Always, always in need of correction. 